Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the show. I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening to this in the world. I have got a very interesting interview coming up with uh, a lady called Dr. Moira Summers. And uh, Moira is a wealth psychologist. And so we have a really interesting discussion about why we perhaps make or put off decisions about certain uh, very important aspects uh, of our lives. We also delve into uh, why we procrastinate. Um, So if you find yourself procrastinating, then listen on and uh, we cover that later on in the show. Before I get into the interview itself, just a reminder, if you want to receive my newsletter, which includes articles, um, blogs, some videos every now and then, uh, and links to podcasts you may have missed or might find interesting, you can sign up to that on the podcast website, which is fanbizpodcast.com. There's a form on the front page. Um, Just scroll down a little bit and you'll see it there. Once you've done that, I send you an email asking you to confirm that you've signed up. And if you can click on that, then you join the mailing list. Uh, I send an email once a month and um, get pretty good feedback from it. So if you want to receive that, just head to the website and fill that in. Secondly, a reminder that after this series of the podcast, we've got this episode plus one more with Stephanie Brobby. After that, we're going to have, again, another couple of weeks break while I record and produce and edit other episodes and then I'm going to be opening this up to uh, almost listener questions if you like so if there is a particular challenge that you are facing within your family business a particular element that you want to hear more information on if there's something that you think you've been through that would be really helpful for other people to hear from and learn from please do get in touch and I will look to create a series based on that the best way to get in touch is via email, and that's russ at familybusinesspartnership.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, if you search for Russ Hayworth on both of those, you should find me there. So as I say, really interesting conversation with Moira. Um, she is somebody that I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time and is a, a really good, fun guest to have on the show so really happy to bring you the interview i hope you enjoy it and i'll pass over to that now well hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the show i am delighted to be joined today by dr moira summers um i'm sure we're going to have a fascinating conversation on the topic of the psychology of wealth and in particular how that uh, interacts with 
families and, and family dynamics. Um, Moira, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And um, before we get into what we're going to be talking about on today's episode, could you give our audience a bit of a history as to who you are, what you do, how you came to be doing it, and um, yeah, just tell us a, a bit of your story. Sure. I'm a psychologist based in the middle of Canada. I have worked for years as a neuropsychologist and clinician as well as a professor. My work with family businesses began as an outgrowth of my work as an executive coach and in particular consulting with families around uh, some of the psychological conditions that could come into play and affect family business functioning. So for example, addictions or personality conflicts or um, dementia, those kinds of things. And so I got invited to come into family businesses through, through that originally and eventually became quite intrigued with how to help families around the psychology of money, the psychology of wealth in particular. So it's been one of those unplanned journeys that's had lots of wonderful uh, detours along the way and it's uh, just a, an incredibly rich and complex area to be working in. And I'm uh, excited to um, hear uh, more from you in terms of the different elements that go into to the work that you do. I guess the starting point is to try and frame what we mean by the psychology of wealth because we can have a number of discussions around what wealth is, what it means, um, and then some of the, the kind of psychology behind that. You mentioned some of the sort of character traits and attributes that led you into the work with family businesses. But if you could, uh, $50 million question or whatever the, the phrase is around <laughs> defining what the, the psychology of wealth is, how would that look? What, what does that mean to you? So in really broad terms, Russ, psychology is the study of human behavior, which includes cognition, um, cognition, emotion, uh, as well as observable actions, things that if you were just a fly on the wall, you could observe going on, as well as those internal processes. And so as applied to wealth, it's really looking at the non-technical aspects of money management. It's how do people go about making decisions about their wealth and how do they how do they relate to it? How do they relate around it? How do they discuss it? We know that every decision gets put through the filter of the personal side of things. No matter how technically complex, it still goes through the filter of does this seem like the right thing based on what I know? Is this the right thing? In, in particular, is this the right thing for me? So advisors who simply come at wealth issues from a very technical tax-oriented or investment-oriented point of view um, often miss the mark greatly in terms of, of what families care about. And I think that's sort of fairly, dare I say, common in terms of the way in which advice is kind of designed in, in terms of the way we learn how to give advice. A lot of it is based on kind of textbook and kind of the 
drier technical factual stuff like saving tax like maximizing investment return whatever the kind of um biases that that we have towards the the advice process but this looks at the other side and perhaps the far more important side of why we make the decisions we make around wealth and what impact does having a certain level of wealth have on people? Is it something that becomes an enabler or a burden? Is, is it that kind of thing? Yes, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know that I would say that the personal side is more important. I think both sides are equally important. What is often misunderstood is that both sides are equally complex. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you think about why is it that you would seek out expert advice in any domain, you know, let's just say, of why do you choose the mechanic that you've got for your, for your car? Uh, it's because you have come to believe that he or she really knows their stuff and that they're really, really good at that. Um, and you rely on that technical expertise. When it comes to money, it's, it's very much the same thing. You need people to be top of their game technically. So it's not that the personal side is more important. It's just that the personal side is the side that has the veto power. You know, if if it doesn't make, if all of that excellent technical advice doesn't, doesn't land right on, on people's hearts and minds, it doesn't go anywhere. People, people end up procrastinating you know, they'll kick decisions down the road, they'll prevaricate, they'll change their minds all the time. So it's, it's really a matter of things needing to act in concert. And for practitioners on either end of, those, of the spectrum to really appreciate the, uh, the gifts that, that everybody brings to the table. We were speaking off air around a conversation I had recently with uh, Jim Grubman and Tom McCullough around mm-hmm. um, it, integrating uh, family wealth. So truly dealing with the, the integration of, of family wealth and the the role of somebody in there to lead that relationship so that they can be across all of the various different issues, both from a technical perspective, but also from a personal perspective. The conclusion we came to, from that discussion was actually it's quite rare to be able to find somebody that is able to do both or all of those skill sets. Mm-hmm. So in your work, do you find yourself working alongside the other advisors to help yes. them to do the, where you're talking about the personal sides and they're talking about the technical? Yeah, you know, I, that's what I mean about both sides are equally complex. You know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't have a PhD in finance and people in finance, people typically don't have a a PhD in psychology and nor would we require or expect that. I think what everybody needs to get really good at is learning how to be great collaborators, great cooperators. Advisors need to take their ego or even their desire to help. You know, some of that has to just get out of the way um, as we show up and, and figure out um, what does this family most need. And even if it isn't, doesn't happen to be me, <laughs> that, that's okay. Um, that, that we really truly come to the table willing to 
um, lead the dance, follow the dance, or not dance for a while. Just thinking back to to understanding both sides of of that in in terms of when a family is um, dealing with with issues around wealth and and looking after that and whatever their ambitions are with that wealth to grow it to to do good with it however they define that they tend to know that they're going to need the technical side of that advice because again that's kind of what we're attuned to to believe is that the the technical side is where it lies but as you say I've um, many moons ago created my own um, three circle model where I had the financial and technical circles overlapping and sometimes there's complexity when there's financial and technical stuff but overlaying that the third circle is the emotional element of it and the financial and technical tend to be based in logic and the emotional side obviously is not always logical in that sense and so when those two collide it can be difficult to understand for people all of this is making sense I've ticked all the boxes from the technical point of view why isn't this person following my advice why aren't they sort of jumping up and down and patting me on the back because i've done such a great job in saving them a load of tax or whatever the, the remit might be i guess the benefits for both families and advisors in understanding some of the psychology of wealth is twofold right because it means the families are better informed as to what they might be looking for away from the technical stuff but the advisors are then better able to understand what it is their clients are looking for on an emotional level. It's not that we want to take emotions out of financial decision making. It's that we want to help people be free from the sway of short-term emotions. You know, that may just be triggered by stress or um, uncertainty or whatever it is that's, you know, right in front of people's face that's keeping them from seeing the whole gamut of things. We, um, or, you know, just, just the randomness of some things, you know, like Dickens says in A Christmas Carol, is, is this something real or is this just a bit of undigested beef? What do I mm-hmm. make of this experience that I'm having? And, and so we want, as we're talking about family wealth decisions and, and family business decisions, we want to make sure that we're really grounded in what matters profoundly uh, to the folks in this, in this system, uh-huh. um, to things that matter over the long term, to things that matter consistently. And we want to help people tap into that. And we, at the same time, we want to be able to be of assistance to them where they are struggling with things like how to make decisions in the, how to make complex and important decisions in the face of uncertainty, um, how to deal with really challenging issues like, like cognitive decline in a leader or um, addiction in in somebody in the family or the emergence of mental illness how do we still move forward with a sense of optimism and make really great decisions uh, while all of this normal stuff of human life is going on and i mean you mentioned some of the um, particular examples there around situations where having an understanding of of how we make decisions on these things if we take the 
example of um, perhaps the, the um, leader of the business, maybe the matriarch or patriarch of the family, starting to lose some of their cognitive ability. H- how do you then start to um, help families to understand what's happening and then how they go about making those decisions mm. using that as an example? You know, I I think as in most other things in life, um, forewarned is often forearmed, right? Like if, if you really take the time to be thinking about what could take us down, what could knock us off our pins, what are the, what are the risks that we could anticipate as a business and how do, we, how do we want to deal with those? And what are the risks that we could anticipate as a family and how do we want to set them up? So um, always, always, always the best, the best strategies, Russ, often involve sitting down at a time when things are relatively calm in the business and to say, what kinds of dementia proofing strategies do I want to put in here? What are my, um, what are some of the best practices to deal with cognitive incapacity not just related to dementia, but as I said, to some of those temporary conditions, um, reversible, treatable. Um, how will we know when to pull the trigger uh, on on beginning to, you know, exit somebody out? How do we make sure that there isn't any one person in the family who could take down the whole enterprise through poor judgment? or through, um, uh, through illegal activities, for example, just really being able to spend a little bit of time looking at prevention-focused activities so that once they're in place, you can go back to looking at promotion-focused activities. You know, how do I have a great family life? How do I have a great business? But if you don't take care of some of those risk things in advance, it can leave you... Um, can leave you back on your heels trying to regain some equilibrium at a at a point when your heart is breaking mm. or you don't have access to your best cognitive capacity yeah and i've spoken about it on on the show um before and and, and used this this type of exercise with clients a lot of work with i call it a lifeboat drill where you run certain yeah. scenarios with the family mm-hmm. of what would would to happen with this so for example you take um loss of um capacity as one what happens to the decision making process within not just the family but the enterprise that that person's a part of as well and what continuity aspects are in place in order to protect the the family the individual and the the enterprise Mm -hmm. at, at play and i guess extrapolating that out over a number of different scenarios is a way to help prepare us to be proactive rather than reactive as you say at a time when you know if somebody is losing capacity or if somebody um, has a debilitating injury that that the family having to deal with as well the last thing you want to do at that point is to then be not knowing how to make decisions what decisions can we do what can't we do how do we go about doing all of this Mm -hmm. yeah it makes uh, this is part of what makes us not so fun at parties <laughs> because we just we have as as a medical professional, I, I have spent much of my life uh, being exposed to how life can change in a heartbeat. You know, 
you're just driving down the street and out of nowhere, somebody hits you or you're going about your business and um, you get your body decides that it's taking a detour um, down down some path you weren't aware of or mm-hmm. your teenager decides to go for a walk on the wild side or your chief financial officer um, you know gets involved in some shenanigans that y- you didn't have awareness of so the ability to to n- occasionally take time out and not in the direction of what can go wrong and build and and just benefit from best practices around that and then get back to the get back to the fun stuff and the exciting stuff you know that's you kind of need to toggle between those occasionally yeah and i think that the uh, the fun at parties comment um made me smile because you did you sometimes wonder whether it's not all doom and gloom this chemical but let, <laughs> let's make sure we've covered mm-hmm. that bit off but yeah. but on the flip side of of that if as a, an advisor part of my responsibility is to go well have you looked at Yes, let's look at what all the good things that could happen. But have you looked at some of the, the negative stuff? Mm-hmm. Sometimes the kind of um, attitudes that you come up against on that are that now's not the right time. We can get to that. Or it, there's not enough kind of urgency or motivation for somebody to look at the negative stuff. Because uh, take the example of, of somebody making a will as well. It is... For some, that feels like if I make a will, it means I'm going to die. And the, I don't think there's any science behind the, the, the linking of that, uh, other than if that were to happen, that at least your affairs would be in order and reflect what you want it to reflect, rather than it being left to whatever the rules are in uh, the country you're in. But is that something you come across as well in terms of the reluctance to address some of the sort of um, riskier side of things, because it does mean perhaps looking at our own mortality a bit or accepting that we're uh, vulnerable to um, those kind of scenarios? Yeah, I, I, I think I haven't come across too often a, a, a belief that is almost that superstitious, that if I make a will, it means I'm going to die. The fact is you are going to die, whether you make a will or not. Um, (laughs) And now might not be the best time um, legitimately, but for most people, it's also not the best time to die. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So of of the two scenarios that you're working with, which one is most preventable or, or most workable? It's not the time of your death. It's the time of your writing the will. And so mm-hmm. if, you, if you know that you've been putting this off, the challenge for advisors and, and, and within families, the challenge is to say, um, okay, if not now, when? And let's get out the calendar and let's circle the date and set it up so that we know come hell or high water, we're going to get this addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there are things that, that keep stopping us, right, like we haven't been able to figure out who's going to be the guardian for our children, um, then start, start recording those things and reaching out to people, experts, friends, and, and find out what do other people do about this mm-hmm. and recognize that it's perfectly okay to get a will in place that at least takes care of the other 95% of the decisions 
even if that one doesn't get nailed down this time around. You know, an imperfect plan B that gets executed is better than a non-existent but perfect plan A. Mm-hmm. So, um, or, or an unexecuted plan A that would have been perfect if only you'd gotten around to it. So, you know, I did my doctoral dissertation on procrastination. So I'm always kind of <laughs> looking at myself and looking at the people that I work with to say, you know what, this smells kind of like you're putting this off. Let's figure out why. Let's figure out why. And for most people, um, there's this combination of uh, failure, like just it's not real until it's scheduled. Uh So as soon as people get it in the schedule, Uh, even if it feels a bit like you're just taking a dart and throwing it at the calendar, that's okay. Just get it in there. And, and stuff tends to fall into place around that. It's, it's while it's just churning in our, our minds as something that we need to get done that it often just doesn't get implemented. Yeah. I'd love to um, delve a bit deeper into to procrastination if if you're happy to do so. But before I do Absolutely. that, though, a, a question in terms of what you're saying there about scheduling something and, and that being the first step to, to it getting done. It, it reminds me a little bit in terms of if you're wanting to, to take on an exercise regime, for example, making it easy to do that, putting the steps in place that are going to make it easy for you to get out of that doesn't necessarily stop your, I'm talking personally here, looking out the window going, oh, it looks a bit cold out there. I don't fancy this run. And then you you push through that and you go for the run and you feel so much better afterwards because you've got the kind of, oh, well, I've, di- I've done that. And obviously there's, there's the chemical stuff in, in terms of exercise. But are there similar things with people who are putting things off then scheduling it and getting it done that lead to that mm-hmm. feeling of peace of mind and relief that even if the worst were to happen now, I know that my family are broadly covered by the, the terms of my will, even if, like you say, it's not absolute perfection. For sure. You know, most of us, um, sadly, <laughs> um, are better at keeping our commitments to other people than we often are keeping the commitments to ourselves, especially the ones that do involve willpower. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are many ways of tackling the problem. You know, I'm involved with a, with a fintech company called Nudge, spelled K-N-U-D-G-E, just to really confuse people, um, <laughs> that is all about helping advisors and clients manage their shared to-do list. Okay. Um, because it's so easy to put stuff off and a really valuable advisor, one of the key things they provide to clients that feels more, I guess, intangible than the quality of the advice. But one of the key things that expert advisors provide that clients love is assistance to get into action and to Uh stay into action once you're kind of on the step. So I am all about just getting it into the date book and, and telling the truth about what will it take for me to not cancel this repeatedly. Uh-huh. There are certain things that we can do as individuals um, that will really kind of 
increase our own internal grit and persistence in getting things done. And sometimes that involves just habit formation, and sometimes it involves harnessing social supports in other ways. So I'm thinking about last night when I came home, I was at a medical, the medical clinic where I work. So yesterday was kind of a heavy day. Um, people with some really complex and sad problems. And I came home for dinner and I was just, oh, I must have said 10 times how tired I was. Mm. But at 6.30, I had a personal trainer coming to put me and a friend through our paces. And, you know, if it had just been in my calendar that I was going to go to the gym at 6.30, There is not a hope in heck I would have got myself out that door. (laughs) But the fact that somebody, A, I'd, you know, I'd hired somebody to come and B, a friend was also coming to do this thing. There was not a hope in heck that I was going to cancel that just because I was tired. You know, I wasn't Uh ill. I was... I'm out of shape, so I get tired, right? So <laughs> this is going to become a vicious cycle. So, you know, some of it just comes out of that kind of truth-telling, um, that kind of um, em- kind of an emotional intelligence that comes from being able to pay attention to where are you just fine on your own and where do you need more systems in place mm-hmm. to get into action and stay into action. So that's, that's really important. And a lot of families now are looking at things like, I guess it sounds like what, what your former guests, Jim and Tom, were talking about, you know, needing to have kind of family gatherings, family retreats, where you bring in somebody to help facilitate the hard stuff. Uh-huh. It's the same reason that, you know, we often will hire executive coaches, there's, there's support and accountability both, you know, those two things that keep us that, yes, yeah, certainly they, they get us into action, but they also do things like they reduce complexity for us. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Somebody else knows some of the best practices out there. Um, they help encourage us when we could otherwise run out of steam on our own. So this combination of how do, you de- how do you develop your own internal grit? How do you become somebody who's more self-disciplined, braver, more capable of, of taking action in the face of uncertainty? There are, there's lots of information out there now about how we can become that kind of person. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and if we only had one arrow in our quiver with which to accomplish that, that one arrow would be other people. Other people help us get there faster. And, and uh, you summed it up brilliantly with the, the combination of support and accountability in terms of like, helping people do it. And again, I often, I, I'm using my own experience because I, I, I know I can share this in terms of when I work with families, is I don't do the work for them because the work needs to be their work, right? It's like your personal trainer co- couldn't come and do the press-ups or star jumps or whatever it was for, for you as much as it might have felt like it yesterday. But but in order to get the results, the work needs to, to go in from a, from a personal perspective. 
but the the support and the accountability that having somebody there with you provide helps you get over that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was just smiling as you said that. Um, my mother-in-law for Christmas gave me um, a mindfulness calendar, a, a coloring book kind of calendar. And the notion was that you're supposed to... Um, just take the time every day, take some time out and do this really meditative coloring. And uh, I opened it up and it was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I started going through it and she'd colored all the pages already. She'd given me this completed calendar. And my <laughs> husband looked at her and said, Mama, what was that about? And she said, well, I knew Moira would never have the time to do it. So I did it for her. And we just cracked up because, um, yeah, so now I have this beautifully colored calendar. Uh, but in terms of uh, whether I've developed what I needed to do in order to slow down and <laughs> not so much, it's kind of like giving somebody a a filled out crossword book or Sudoku book, you know, it's like, yeah, I've saved you the, I've saved you the trouble. You can just I, look I've at it. I've saved you the trouble. Sorry. <laughs> so there are some things that we can outsource and some things where um, we have to do the work, but it doesn't mean we have to do the work alone. Completely. Yeah. And that's where the benefit of external advisors or facilitators can really come into its own, isn't it? In terms of helping provide that framework and, and support. Yeah. Talking about procrastination, um, again, very broad question, and I, I imagine it might be quite an annoying question, but I'll ask it anyway, is why do we procrastinate? Is there a single reason? Is it, a, is it Does it depend on our upbringing, our kind of motivations? What, what are the factors that go into the reasons we procrastinate? Well, Freud would probably say we were weaned too early or, you know, it's all the mother's fault. I, <laughs> I don't know what the psychodynamic explanation would be for this. <laughs> um, but um, as you can imagine, it's just this multi-complex thing. Within psychology, there's this kind of truism, which is that behavior persists because it's reinforced. Why does a dog beg at the table? Well, because even if there's nobody slipping them carrots on the side... Um, every once in a while, the kid drops something, and <laughs> there's reinforcement. So procrastination can be really reinforcing um, when it's anxiety or uncertainty that's driving it. Right? One of the primary strategies for dealing with anxiety is avoidance. And the problem is that it works beautifully, at least for a time. It's kind of like, Another really good uh, strategy for high anxiety is taking a belt of liquor. Well, that works too, uh, but it's not really considered <laughs> the best strategy in the long run. So a lot of the strategies that we adopt, a lot of the behaviors that we adopt that are maladaptive persist because they work really beautifully in the short run to make us feel better. So we typically don't procrastinate on things we love. Right? We procrastinate on things that are, you know, boring or hard, annoying, anxiety inducing. And so that, that's, you know, it's usually enough just to know it, right? You know, you can stop right there. What is going on emotionally that is making it 
hard for you to slip into gear and, and, and get moving on this one. Secondary reasons include sort of unwitting procrastination that we just don't have systems in place to keep us organized. Right? It really, in truth, it's not real until it's scheduled. They've done some really interesting work around college college courses where kids are either they're given three choices, one of which is the professor sets a, a kind of normal schedule of assignments, another condition where the professor says you can um, you can do these whenever you want to, just make sure everything gets in by the end of term. And a third one where the professor says, you set up your own schedule, and as long as you meet your own commitments, then you'll get full credit. You won't be penalized for any lateness. Can you imagine which of those conditions results in um, the most on-time assignments? Professor sets it. Professor sets a regular schedule. Professor says, just get it done by the end of term. Or professor says, you set it and keep your own commitments. So I'm trying to think which one would make me achieve that kind of deadline, if you like. And I think it would probably be the last in terms of me making a commitment to get it done by a certain time. But I also wonder whether having the freedom to just, it all needs to be done by such and such a date. I can imagine myself waiting until three days before and then going, right, I've got to pile everything <laughs> everything into this. Um, and I wonder whether there's a correlation there in terms of the quality of the outcome as well, in, as well as those getting the work done by then, the quality of the work in, in terms of Interesting. that. Interesting, yeah. I, I'm intrigued. Which, which yeah. one is the, the right answer? Condition one. There is something about that experience external accountability yeah the clue was there wasn't it in terms of I was, I was applying my own mind to it how I would would deal with it yeah I thought condition three would have been I mean certainly everything is more both of them are more powerful than the middle of middle condition where the only trigger is the end of term yeah uh, both of those things are better so deadlines are better um, spaced out deadlines are better than just one massive deadline at the at the end. That makes sense, eh? Mm -hmm. um, but I I too thought that if people set it according to their own knowledge of you know I, I don't know I have seasonal affective disorder so January and February are terrible months for me. I'll I'll make mm -hmm. sure to get everything in in March and April. Um, but it turns out that. Um, that having somebody else tell you this is what I think is the best schedule um, and do it according to this yeah, um, tends to get better uptake. Now, they've, they've been doing some different studies around this, so we'll see how, how it emerges over time. But it's just, you know, I just think it's, it's one of the things that, that can keep us humble, you know, to say, all right, I will tuck and draft behind what this expert is telling me Mm -hmm. um, is, is best unless I, I have a really compelling reason to know that this won't work for me or won't work for us right now. Um, I'll go along with this yeah. and in turn for us as advisors to have our, our own emotional intelligence attuned to 
am I just kind of aiding and abetting in stuff not getting done? Is my compassionate flexibility um, actually enabling somebody <laughs> to be a hot mess? And do uh -huh. I need to either look at um, saying, what, what else could be done here? Who else could we call in to do this? How can I provide more structure and support? What can be taken off your plate while you engage in this hard task? Uh -huh. um, what if we just, um, what if we pull you out of your normal workaday distractions while we get this done together? What is it that might enable us to get through this really hard thing? Is it that um, you need help in persisting through difficult conversations? Are you really worried this thing is going to blow your family apart? Do you have reason? Have you actually witnessed that? Mm. Have you witnessed um, something that in your family that I need to understand uh, before I blindly assign you homework, uh, you know, yeah. before I blindly tell you to go do something without a full appreciation of why this is so hard for you? Mm. So this is what I mean about how the, the personal side of uh, advising is equally complex, right? You, you do need to understand what the inputs are uh -huh. um, before you start looking for the outputs. Yeah, and I guess this could be a chicken and an egg question, but, but in terms of families looking to address their concerns, would they typically start by looking at the kind of the emotional side of the, their concerns and, and what it is that they're trying to achieve do they go well we've got wealth we need the wealth to be managed let's start with that side does it depend on the family it i mean you're you're saying you got approached in, in your work as an executive coach to to, to go in and work with families and, and family systems as a result of the work that you're doing my guess and it is a pure guess and i'm very happy to be wrong on it is that far more people are aware of the kind of support that are available from financial advisors, from lawyers, from accountants than they are from executive coaches, perhaps, or from even people myself, like a, a family business advisor, is, is it's, mm -hmm. there's far more in terms of the availability of the former than there is of the latter. But do, do you mm -hmm. see any patterns there in the, in the work that you're doing? I think I can say this, that there's fair more, there's much more variability in quality of some of the personal side of advising than there is <laughs> on the uh, technical side um, because often there just isn't the, the kind of agreed upon body of knowledge that people need to have. Um, there isn't the accreditation often that people need to have. And so, you know, not anybody can just hang out their shingle and say, I'm a certified financial advisor. Uh, yeah. There's actually, you'll get in trouble if you do that and you yeah. aren't. Whereas pretty much anybody can say, I'm a counselor, I'm, an, I'm a coach. And so um, I think that families do need to do some, some of, and advisors need to do their due diligence in terms of seeking out folks with, with, with real depth of expertise and skill mm. in doing this work. Um, I think also there's just this natural 
kind of evolution within a family business. You know, most people start their own business and very few of them, I mean, obviously they want to do well in their business, but for many, many people who are either solopreneurs or who start a, a, a more typical business, they just want to do good work and they want to make a living, a good living for their family. And the wealth often comes as this sort of shock um, that, you know, some combination, what most families will say is, yeah, it was, it was hard work for sure. And there was a real element of just right time, right place, good luck, Uh um, absence of bad luck, some combination of these things. And so the technical stuff emerges in concert with the growth of the business. But the wealth takes longer to emerge for most, for most people, for most businesses. Um, the technical stuff comes and then the wealth comes. And then you realize, oh, there's this whole other domain that uh, we should be looking at, especially if you're looking to do wealth transfer or business transfer um, and and you want to do it right, you recognize, oh boy, there's a there's a separate set of skills that we're going to need to be thinking about. But even middle class or or working class families, Russ, you know, there's I've compiled my top ten list of things that that are of financially um, sort of the the top ten financial skills that modern families need in order to succeed. Um, and, and I think it doesn't matter where you are in the wealth spectrum. If you don't have some of those basics mastered, you're not going to do well, right? If you don't live below your means, whatever those means are, uh, you're going to be in trouble. If you don't make provisions um, to protect yourself against some of those bad luck events or against bad actors with bad intentions, right? The fraudsters, uh, if you don't talk to your kids about, about how to protect yourself from online scammers, for example, they're going to be disadvantaged and they're going to be taken advantage of. So there's all of these things that are just necessary no matter where you are in the wealth spectrum. For families with more considerable means, it's just that each one of those skills kinds of, kind of needs to be enhanced even more. It's not just online scammers that might want to steal your money for this pair of running shoes that you thought you were going to be getting and turns out it wasn't it wasn't legit now there are people now there are gold diggers now there are people who want to be your friends because you're wealthy how do you have that how do you develop that level of discernment Mm -hmm. when is the right time to disclose your wealth or when is the if we go back to you know, maybe another end of the spectrum. When is the when is the right time in an intimate relationship to disclose your financial struggles, uh, your debt, um, how many zeros there are after your name? You know, th- these are all things that require once again this combination of kind of uh, technical knowledge as well as emotional intelligence. You've got to know yourself. And you've got to you've got to be able to read other people, and and work to bring those things together in a way that works for 
for you and for the relationship that you're trying to establish. Fantastic. And I can feel a part two coming on um, where we uh, discuss some of those in in more detail. I'd mm. love to be able to um, carry on that conversation um, now, but if, if you're happy to, we will arrange a part two where we can delve into that um, a little bit deeper. Um, but, That'd be but fun. For now, thank you so much for your, your time and expertise. Where can our audience find out more about you and your work? The easiest way would probably be to navigate uh, their way to my website, which is um, the longest URL in the world, probably, <laughs> I, I believe. It's uh, moneymindandmeaning.com. And uh, I'm sure you can put that in the show notes. We will indeed. We'll absolutely put links in there. Um, and uh, as I say, look forward to recording a part two where we can dig into some of those areas um, a bit deeper mm. and, and um, uh, approach some of those uh, other aspects you spoke about. But for now, Moira, thank you so much and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.